1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast In The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. To govern is to choose, they say, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson is discovering that he's having to make a lot of big choices, most notably this week on Huawei and the role of the Chinese in British tech, but there are other policy areas... Two. Uh, Jenny Russell will talk us through the problems engulfing the universal credit welfare system, while Ian Martin is here to tell us that actually it's all going very well inside Boris Johnson's Danishry But we kick off with Lucy Fisher, the Times Defence Editor, on the big security questions facing number 10.
2: The move to green light Huawei's involvement in Britain's 5G this week sets the UK on a collision course with the US. It also threatens to cleave the wider Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance – Downing Street has concluded, however, that the economy must trump security in this instance. Eschewing Huawei would delay the UK's mobile network upgrade by up to two years and cost the economy billions because the West failed to invest sufficiently in developing rival technology a decade ago. British spooks believe now that they can manage the risk of Huawei. Going forward, however, what do we need to invest in now to avoid similar choke points in 2030?
1: So let's start at the very beginning, Lucy. What is 5G and why is it so important? Most people are still thinking, you know, 4G is a bit modern and fancy.
2: Well, 5G is the next generation of um, mobile uh, network and it's going to revolutionise connectivity. It's not just higher speeds, which has been the main characteristic of previous upgrades. You just have faster connection to the internet, perhaps on your smartphone, This is all about the Internet of Things and how billions more um, items, everyday kind of household, white appliances, whether it's your fridge, thermostat, washing machine, will all um, uh, connect to the Internet of Things. And there'll be this greater sort of degree of connectivity between anything. It will facilitate that.
1: And this this is why it's really important. It's not just about being able to download the Redbox podcast slightly more quickly on your mobile phone. It's also about, you know, driverless cars will probably run on 5G and they'll speak to each other uh, and to human beings. And all of that sort of stuff. So this, this is why that it's so much uh, more important. Talk us through then why is that we are having to rely on China to bring this new system about and why that
2: might be a problem? Well, the reason we're having to rely on China is because it has the most sophisticated, up-to-date technology and it is cheaper than the alternatives. Um, there are only two um, European alternatives that we could uh, choose instead for our 5G infrastructure. They are Ericsson and Nokia. And by various estimates, um, it would take far longer to uh, install that kit. They don't have the same number of engineers and support network. Um, it's claimed by supporters of Huawei to be able to get it get it all sorted. Um, and it's considerably more expensive. Now, um, critics of Huawei would point out that that may be because Huawei has received... Um, state subsidies and uh, therefore it's not a level playing field. But the reason um, that there is a row about the security of it is partly because um, Beijing, uh, the regime, obligates all Chinese companies to cooperate with its uh, intelligence agencies. So people are concerned that Huawei being a Chinese company would be forced to either create backdoors into the technology to facilitate either espionage or sabotage uh, if it was asked to by the government.
1: And that's where you get the extreme example of where, in theory, they could take control of driverless cars and use them as as weapons or turn off power stations and and wreak havoc.
2: Yeah, that's the kind of apocalyptical scenario. It's probably worth saying that, of course, Huawei completely denies that it's a security (laughs) risk uh, and maintains that it is a privately uh, owned uh, employee-controlled company, not, uh, not under any influence on the state.
1: Jenny, are you worried about this?
2: Yeah, very much so.
3: In fact, I feel I'm ahead of the game here in that about um, eight years ago, when you still had those things called dongles that you put into computers, I bought one at my local phone shop, came home, looked at it, saw that it was made by Huawei, put it in the drawer, never took it out again on the basis that I don't want a Chinese company spying on my tech. I mean, of course... Actually, I, think
1: I had a Huawei dongle. It was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was probably great. Refer.
3: Actually, going back to Lucy saying, of course, I'm no expert whatsoever. I know I've just watched movies and 24 and so on and know that um, in the end, power is always what matters. Governments will do anything that gets them an advantage. The Chinese government doesn't have Britain in its list of anything other than a potential ally or target as it suits them. That's just the reality of the world. Super tech people are super clever. They'll find their way around any barriers that um, the British think they can put up. But the bigger story here, this seems to me, is that actually this is Britain suddenly confronting the realities of global power, global education, global investment, and are being way, way down the league. We can't do this ourselves. We don't have the technology. We don't have the people. We don't have the understanding. We haven't built up the sector we don't have the know-how. We've got to bring it in from outside. And if this is what's happening with Huawei now, and I think Johnson is making the wrong decision, I think it's absolutely foolish to put the entirety of the British economy in hoc to Chinese power and Chinese technology, which is what we're doing. This kind of situation is going to be replicated over and over again. The, all, the, all the Brexit delusions about what a great buccaneering nation we're going to be, we're a little tiny nation way behind others in key sectors, and we are going to have... To to be in many ways rule takers not just official rule takers from the eu which is what we're quarrelling over at the moment but essentially we're going to have to take the rules over whoever has built the industries and the technology on which we are going to depend in the future and that raises huge questions for us about how are we going to make britain a stronger and more literate and and cleverer and more innovative nation because we're not on a path to that now
1: ian jenny sounds like donald trump he's not a fan of this either it's the first time first Jenny's time ever. <laughs> I think that's unnecessarily gloomy. I, I share Jenny's concern about the, the specific
4: decision. I think it is a it, it is a mistake to embed uh, Chinese technology in this in this way. But then there are sectors, globally significant sectors, where actually Britain does have, if not a lead, it has major advantages in biosciences. It has major advantages in uh, in fintech. It's, it is. Clearly, the leader in Europe in fintech, and the city is um, is about 20 20 times the size of anything comparable in uh, on the continent of Europe. So, Britain has advantages, but um, obviously has some challenges as well. I think it has a a longer tail than Brexit. It goes back to, and who are we were first welcomed in, remember, in sort of two thousand and three, two thousand and four. And a decision was made, and it's cross-party this, really by the British political establishment that China was the emerging power and that Britain had to get alongside it. What then happened was the financial crisis. And after the financial crisis, Osborne and Cameron took a decision, which I, I can understand why they did it, it turns out I think to be a mistake, that Britain had to really go for it with the Chinese connection. Osborne himself made speeches saying that they didn't take the American approach that we were as open to Huawei as, as, as possible. When they did that, they of course couldn't have anticipated Brexit, which complicates things. And they couldn't have anticipated or didn't anticipate something like Donald Trump and an insurgent American first, isolationist, protectionist American president. So the entirety of the UK defense pretty much the entirety of the defense, security, and intelligence establishment and the civil service establishment has made this bet at various points in the last 15 years. And now, surprise, surprise when it comes to it, they advise their political masters that it's all a bit too complex to unravel and there's nothing really to worry about. I hope that they're right, but if they're wrong and it comes to major confrontation or something worse than just a trade war at some point in the next 10, 20 years, then Britain will have the very, very expensive task of unplugging and ripping out a lot of 5G stuff that it's taken from the Chinese. I hope the head of MI5 and the head of MI6 and the cabinet secretary are right, but they'll be retired by the time we fa- find out That's if they're wrong. Like, what is have- the
1: mood of the, the sort of spooks that you speak to?
2: Well, I think that there is a sense that on a technical level, the risks can be managed. Um there are some caveats to the to this uh, decision to allow Huawei into five G. It's not allowed into the core, the main sort of motorway of information exchange. That's the most sort of sensitive part. It's restricted to the edge or the sort of the access. That's sort of radio towers and so forth. I think part of the concerns in the intelligence community is that um, Huawei code is not particularly well made. So, for example. It's difficult to patch because it's not uniform. Huawei is, is quick to fix little bugs here and there, but it, it does so in an ad hoc way, which means that you can't then release a patch for the entire system um, that will work. And that's one reason that some of the rivals argue that they are better made and that's why they're they're more expensive and, and so forth. So far, the Spooks are confident that they can, they can manage the way that 5G will work, but I think it's such a revolutionary technology we probably can't even envisage now How it will be used uh, in a decade's time.
4: It's a very chaotic White House in terms of how it communicates, and the administration is 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 dysfunctional. The reality is is that uh, the Americans have not put in the infrastructure work and the coordination on providing an alternative. In an ideal world, the Americans would have joined the dots and had the five nations of the Five Eyes cooperate with various other key European technology. Uh, companies or powers, and construct something which is effectively 5G for the West. To do that would have required coordinated action four or five years ago. It didn't happen. So the Americans, when they criticise the British, British, are inheriting a consequence of their own failure to prepare properly. The Chinese have stolen a march on the Chinese state very cleverly, rather brilliantly, and it is the Americans ultimately
1: who I think so, who are to blame for this. And what are I the Americans going to do? Are they just going to not have five G until much later?
2: They will face more a delay. But just following on from what Ian said, I also think um, the Yanks have played the politics incredibly badly. They have been so heavy-handed in their lobbying campaign that in a sense I feel like Boris Johnson wasn't left much of an option um but to sort of stand up to them it's been so public, so forceful and of course the the trope of the British Prime minister being a poodle of the us is such a such a well-worn criticism um that it actually sort of I can see how it would be attractive on a political level to defy um defy the us on, on the
4: it's a really fascinating break though with with precedent. You have to go back a long way to find a British leader taking a decision like this, which really alienates the US in this field anyway. Now it may have happened in Boris's case by accident, but it it might end up being seen as a sort of break in a 25 year continuum that automatically the British go with what the Americans ask for. For Johnson, that brings its own huge Risks of alienating uh, of alienating the Americans. It's not a it's not a free, it's not a free pass. In the short term, politically, it probably suits him to demonstrate that he's not it's not quite love actually, but that he that he <laughs> that he is prepared to, is prepared stand, to stand up, up to, to, someone to someone who's ostensibly theoretically his friend.
2: It was Trump that sort of broke that relationship rather than you know than the UK, and I think in particular two really seismic events. The first was um, Trump's shock announcement uh, last September, that he was going to affect this 100% drawdown of troops in Syria, which totally through the Ministry of Defence into absolute havoc because we had scores of special forces on the ground completely reliant on the US for all sorts of infrastructure, transport, logistics, um, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. And then again at the beginning of the year with the Soleimani
3: strike. Lucy, just given your expertise as a political correspondent as well as somebody with um, defence, do you think that Trump is likely to turn against the Brits on the trade deal if they defy him on Huawei?
2: he's just so unpredictable and so inconsistent. I'm sure, you know, we'll all be watching this afternoon to see what he tweets, um, uh, you know. I uh, think
1: it's entirely possible, given his track record for total inconsistency, that he gets very cross about this. And then forgets Uh, And then next week he'll be back to trade Trump and he'll be heralding doing a great trade deal with the UK.
3: Oh, so no cost except for the Chinese taking over our communication system in 20 years.
1: Well, there is that. And actually, (laughs) I, I heard someone speaking last week, Lucy, about how although it's... It is an issue for the UK, but because of the UK's uh, strength in national security, we'll probably be able to mitigate some of the possible risks. But part of the problem with us going ahead with Huawei is the message it sends to other countries that it's all right to do this, who perhaps won't be quite so hot on the building in protections and that sort of stuff. And actually, China could end up going to a load of other countries which are less capable of Shutting those back doors and all that sort why, of stuff.
3: Why, why doesn't, why don't the Europeans and the Americans decide to cooperate now on building such a system and just say shrug their shoulders and say, okay, my remote control of my boiler or talking to my fridge it will have to be delayed a couple of years.
1: Because we're trying to be a more forward-thinking, and innovative country, Jenny, like you wanted. Well, yeah, <laughs> very, very short term, <laughs> very short
3: term thinking. Though, Interestingly, the it?
1: Germans have, of course, delayed their
4: decision again, mm-hmm. so you won't really find out what what Germany thinks until uh, until March there's a possibility that the, the Germans will, will try and lead on that or that there might be some sort of EU um, EU initiative by the which point Britain forward. will have taken the decision. I don't think, just on the trade thing, I mean, I'm unusual as a Brexiteer in thinking that there won't be a US trade deal. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think there will be a, a, a handshake in uh, either in, in, in number 10 or in the, in, the, in the Oval Office when Donald Trump and Boris Johnson announced that they've reached a trade understanding there'll be a memo published and working groups will be established. I don't think you will get a single big agreement because it's too difficult on the agriculture side. There is no way that this government can take on uh, what would be just about every newspaper in the country, most of public opinion. All of the supermarkets, the farmers, it's just not going to fly the chlorinated chicken thing as much as the Americans are trying. And it may be British sentimentality. Chlorinated not, chickens
1: can't fly. That's It's not going to work. Instead,
4: you'll see a sector by sector approach that will drag on for years and you'll get some trade wins, but you won't get a single big complete uh, agreement or certainly not for seven eight, nine, ten years.
1: Well, it'll be interesting how that all pans out. Let's move on. though. Let's come uh, slightly closer to home. Let's talk about an issue of domestic policy. And this is Jenny Russell.
3: The national rollout of Universal Credit this year is a looming disaster for all the poorest working and non-working households in Britain, including many of Boris Johnson's new voters. Universal Credit is tipping far too many people into fear, debt, homelessness and hunger because its levels are too low and it makes all its claimants wait at least five weeks to get their money. Even Tory MPs are demanding change. And yesterday, the House of Lords announced an inquiry into whether universal credit is failing. One in three households are going to be on these benefits in 2023. That's a lot of potentially desperate, angry voters if the government doesn't start rethinking this terrible system
1: now. Jenny, it feels like a sort of annual tradition early in the year you come on the podcast and warn about the problems with Universal Credit, and nobody in the government ever listens, and they just oh, keep no, rolling it don't.
3: out. Oh no, no, they <laughs> don't. When we when we made a fuss about it um, two years ago, well, I think. Well, I think
1: it might be two. For, years, first yeah. of
3: all, it was um, the chief secretary to the Treasury saw me and said, "You know, we're really going to do something about this. I know you're very worried about it. We're improving it." They um, started offering loans to people who were claiming Universal Credit. They cut the wait from six weeks to five. And they started saying that um, if people were really desperate, then their rent could be paid directly to their landlords, so they didn't have to manage that section of the money, rather than having to take control of it themselves. Now, those were some mitigations to a totally disastrous system, but they were completely inadequate. And and we, we've seen by the v- hugely increased numbers using food banks, by the fact that um People who are on universal credit, rent arrears go up sixfold when people move from existing benefits to universal credit. Food bank use in that area goes up 50%. We are not talking about um, shroud-waving here. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of people being plunged into um, situations of absolute crisis psychologically, financially, and physically through a deliberate decision. And it is so short-sighted because you are saying to people who are already in, in situations of difficulty because they've lost their jobs, that we are now going to make this almost impossible for you to manage. We're going to send you into a state where you are panicking every single day about how you're going to survive, who you're going to borrow from, how you're going to meet your rent, whether you're going to be made homeless. And to expect people in those situations then to be able calmly to look for a new job is just impossible. And last year, the House of um, Commons report said that people were being pitched into situations where they had unmanageable levels of debt, simply through the operation of universal credit. It doesn't have to be this way.
1: Do you think that the original intention of universal credit, of merging different benefits into one, was a sort of noble aim, which has been ultimately undermined by constantly taking money out of the system
3: yes it was it was, a, it was a really sensible and quite noble grand aim to say let's make the system much less complex let's have one point which people can go to when they lose their jobs or let's not remember most people in universal credit aren't unemployed they're the low paid which is why one in three households are going to be on it by the end of 2023 this is the subsidy to people whose um, lives are just unmanageable if their low wages aren't topped up so it's a great many voters yes to begin with it was an excellent idea it was betrayed by so many things first of all we're not very good at building computer systems as we uh, as we know and, <laughs> I mean, and the chinese uh, could
1: have done it <laughs> i'm sure they'd have done it very smoothly i'm not sure quite um, but, how good their welfare state is but yeah they, they could have done
3: it yeah they've taken theirs apart um secondly it was absolutely betrayed by the treasury's decision to um pinch it with george osborne's pinched the amount of money that was being allocated to it with George Osborne's ruthless calculation that he didn't really need these voters and that the rest of the electorate wouldn't really care what happened to them. So universal credit has been made infinitely meaner. Now, people who get jobs on universal credit can only keep 37 pence of every pound they earn above a level of about 60 pounds per week for a single person, which means that if you're poor and you get a job, you cannot earn your way out of poverty if your marginal gain is 37 pence in the pound, supposing you're having to pay for extra childcare over that after that or extra travel, it's simply not worth it. And one of the things that has to change, and this was recommended by a conservative think tank last year, is that people should be able to keep 50 pence in every pound that they earn once they once they start getting wages. Secondly, you have to cut that weight, which is deliberately put in there at, at six weeks initially, five weeks now before you get your money, back to the level that it used to be when people got ordinary benefits, which was that you would be paid within a fortnight, and mostly a lot of people got paid at the end of the first week. You cannot take people who are by definition poor and in need, which is why they qualify for universal credit, and then say, live on air for five weeks. Just pay all your bills.
1: And it's not just just coping without any money in that five weeks, but you create a whole new load of problems. Uh, yes, join because, that five weeks.
3: because then you're you're heavily in debt either to moneylenders or universal credit will give you a loan but then they withdraw that money from your subsequent payments so you've been given just enough to manage and then you are given less than you can manage on and it creates a hole from out of which people cannot climb and that's what all the evidence shows
1: Ian, what impact do you think this has on the sort of tory brand and the the because the botched onto just one in a whole load of places which aren't particularly well off, yeah. which will have a lot of people about to go onto this universal credit system he's got to be more alive to this, hasn't he?
4: he does I think Jenny's right um for the reasons explained, the way in which it was botched and the combination of cutbacks plus the sanctions regime um brings us to this point, which has i think at its most in its most extreme manifestation. Rough sleeping, which everyone is conscious of in any major city, and there are some claims it's declining, but i i would I would question that um, it's been one of the most notable phenomenons in our cities in the last four or five years. the return of this. Why is that? I was talking the other day to a friend of mine who runs a drugs charity and is has been banging this drum all along about universal credit that what it what it represented in its Osbonite form, was um, a real shift in the welfare system. For the first time, because we were doing it in a cheese-pairing way as a country, you were saying to a certain category of people, there is no money for you. You You're in breach of the rules, you're being sanctioned, and that's it for X number of weeks. You really have nothing. So you go back to the 80s and the 90s and the sort of emergency loan approach, which then the government has had to try and reinvent. But people who are on the streets rough sleeping, there is a great crossover. They have gone through a process where they are completely cut off and then forced into rough sleeping. So if he wants to, uh, to deal with that, to make him to really appear to care about the social fabric, which I'm sure he does. Well, it's yeah. genuine. I'm sure. It's, I'm sure it, is, sure it is genuine. But if he wants people to notice a difference, you have to tackle rough sleeping, and you have to tackle what what Jenny um, Jenny talks about. It. Rough sleep, sleeping is just one extreme manifestation of uh, process and of ten years of austerity. It's very difficult because everyone is demanding money. Every part of the the system, I and mean, you tot up what people think um, the government needs to start spending more money on in Britain at the moment. And it's it's a, it's a pretty big, pretty big sum. But I do think it's not just a question of appearances. I, I think that in the last decade, the Tories overdid it on this and it's had real obvious um, social consequences that they have to start dealing with.
1: Lucy, as Ian was saying, the budget in March could be very expensive for Sajid Javid if he tries to address all those concerns.
2: Yeah, that's right. But um, uh, clearly something needs to be done. And I think when you look back at the design of UC, it was just incredibly cynical to introduce this six-week delay between moving off the legacy system onto this new flagship government system. And it just makes me quite angry to think that, you know, George Osborne presumably thought that people could, you know, Beg and borrow from friends and family to tide them over, which know, is a very to... sort of middle class or, or above, you know, wealthy person sort of attitude towards a sort of cash flow problem, I, I and will... completely um, in, inappropriate for vast swathes of the of the country. When you look at average savings, you know, huge proportion of the country has less than you know five hundred sort of pounds in, in the bank. The,
4: the voters are partly to blame as well because Osborne would say, when he was doing that, and he would, I'm sure, dispute the, our characterization of his of his decisions the polling was overwhelming on cracking down on for want of a better phrase welfare cheats that's not what we're talking about but it, there was post austerity weirdly a particular public feeling that that if there were cutbacks to be made that welfare people needed to be tough on welfare and that's that's why they did it they focus grouped it to death and
1: they and it, it po- was, and it polled you very, be tough polled enough very on well on welfare. that was definitely the message yeah. was
2: there's also a productivity problem wasn't there that there was a cliff edge you could fall off so it it, it if you started earning above a certain amount then you then you'd see certain certain of your um, benefits cut and they wanted to w- make work pay by introducing this taper rate so that any mm. extra hours you did would always pay they wouldn't p- push you up into a new a new category or above a certain threshold that would see your benefits cut and therefore your overall income come down there were reasons for for the design of the taper
3: rate well initially the taper rate was much more generous I think it was that initially you kept 45 pence in every pound it was certainly higher and one of the reasons although IDS is much attacked for this and there are reasons to attack him he resigned over in in the last resort over Osborne's savagery towards universal credit because he felt that the whole original purpose of it, which was to make work pay, was being betrayed. But just as a warning sign for what's about to come, yes, of course, it's true that um, attitudes to welfare have shifted to become very negative over the past few years. It's quite marked, um, the social attitudes that people think welfare should be cut. But let's not forget universal credit is hugely a subsidy to the low paid to people who are in jobs. But because wage rates have not shifted upwards in 10 years, they are really struggling. And one of the extraordinary mistakes of the new system is that people who are currently on existing benefits, which is, um, I think, about four and a half or five million people now who are going to be shifted onto universal credit, they are not going to be moved automatically onto universal credit they're going to get letters telling them to apply and they too are going to be forced to go through the five week hole before they get new benefits
4: and they did think it's
3: unconscionable
4: but they did think that it turns out to be wrong but they did think that you'd start to get improvements in productivity uh, and that once britain was sort of out of the worst of the financial crisis sort of 20 12 2013, you would then start to get improvements in productivity, and you'd then start to get um, wages rising. Well, we all know that that didn't happen for all, ma- for, all for all for all manner manner of reasons, which is because en-
3: of austerity, which, which is if you're which, a Keynesian, you you always a, said wasn't going to let the has ended
4: grow. It, Well, the, the, the national debt went up a hell of a lot. If we were, if it, you know, it was called austerity, but the national debt increased massively. But it because did. The but the lack grow. of the lack of the lack of. Um, Increase, uh, you know, increase in wages and Britain's long running productivity problem, which is pro- the single biggest problem that this government really has to tackle in the next 10 years, because so much that it wants to do flows from improved productivity and increased wages. And they'll be sunk if they, if, if they can't find some um, answers to these very difficult problems. But it has then, as you described, Jenny, trapped lots of people uh, in a system that the central government expected them now not to be not on welfare to be. or to, to need very little of it.
1: And in fact, I remember during those debates when you, they were trying to make the distinction that well, no, these are new people. It's only new people coming onto the system because those those people didn't exist yet and they hadn't claimed any. More. Well, those people do now exist and they're they they fine. They can't. They manage. can't. They can't manage. Okay. Still to come, Ian Martin is going to talk us through. We're going to play the game where we ask Ian to tell us it's all going very well, which he might actually be able to do with a straight face. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly. Joining the studio by uh, Jenny Russell, Lucy Fisher, and this is Ian Martin. Boris Johnson is turning out to be a rather good
4: Prime Minister. He takes his time on major decisions and, thank goodness, he keeps public showboating to a minimum. He's comfortable in his own skin and it is refreshing to see after the chaos and dysfunction of recent years. Of course, a lot can and will go wrong in the many years of his premiership that lie ahead He and his party need watching like a hawk. But those of us who had concerns about his capacity to be Prime Minister were worrying unduly. And those who were most blinded by anti-Brexit prejudice completely underestimated
1: him. Turns out, he's rather a good Prime Minister. You did that entirely with a straight face. <laughs> almost, almost. There's a small <laughs> smile at the end. I believe it. <clears throat> so throughout the last three and a half years, since Brexit, because you, you were a reliever, um yeah. I, I think every time I've had you on the podcast... Apparently I've, that's happening. I've Apparently heard, we are yeah. leaving the European Union. I, yeah. I've heard barely anything about it. I've tried to get you to say it's all going very well <laughs> with a straight face and you haven't always been able to but you think it is now
4: there is a there is a caveat (laughs) (laughs) which is that there's a hell of a lot for this government it's got major challenges brexit's only one of them the global economy is overdue Some, some some sort of correction and there are various stress points there um there's rise of china to deal with there's a very difficult white house to to deal with all of that plus he's got to save the union Plus, um, he's got to make people um, convinced that there is some improvement happening in left-behind parts of Britain, improve improve productivity, sort out the tax system, fix welfare, as Jenny said. It is not straightforward. However, I think that after the May era and even Cameron before that, it is apparent in the way in which he's conducting himself in uh, in office, and I disagree with some of the individual decisions he's taken. That he's rather comfortable in the role. He isn't for someone who has been defined by much of his for much of his life and career as needing to be loved. He doesn't seem now he's become prime minister that needy in terms of public attention. He has dialed down the number of public appearances. They, they they've got the message that the punters don't want. Politicians on the TV non-stop. They had that for the last year and a half, and it, uh, it didn't work out very, very well. He's also, I think, in his decision not to move to Dominic Cummings' NASA-style command and control <laughs> uh, mission control in Number Twelve Downing Street. Story broken by um, by Matt on Red Box. That uh, and he said, "No, actually, do you know what? Having waited." 10, 10, 20, 30 years to become Prime Minister. I think I would rather stay in number 10 in this office. (laughs) Thank you very much. And the indications are that he's not going to completely redesign and smash up the entire machinery of the British state as some people around him want to. He's being more measured and more sensible
1: and so far I think it's going pretty well. Now, just playing devil's advocate for a moment, is this not what people said two months into Theresa May's Premiership Isn't it marvellous The way we haven't seen her She's not on Twitter All the time like that David Cameron Really dialing it down It's not our job To feed the beast Uh, The lobby can go And find their own stories We were told I didn't, and you were. I mean, you you have a claim to be the first person that said <laughs> this is a load of rubbish. But I, if
4: if you were first, I was close behind you. I, I oh, well, thank you for that, Ian. I'm, yeah, a, always... veteran,
1: I'm a veteran. I'm yeah, the you. officer in the trip. After yeah. you, <laughs> <laughs> we need a futile gesture. I'll blow the whistle and you go
4: first. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was there was actually a character in um, DC Thompson comics called Hugo First, the cowardly spy. <laughs> That's true, um, but. No, I didn't. I, has, I mean, the crucial. I didn't, thing, I, didn't, I didn't buy that, and I've I've been round the round the block enough with these hilarious attempts to run a Downing Street terror. I saw New Labour do it. I remember a government minister in '97 telling me, "Alistair Alistair is going to crack down on lunching, and there's no lunching." And he told me that over lunch. <laughs> so, it's, so, so, politicians have their own ways of. Dealing with with this, the terror never works. The attempt to crack down on their appearances on media doesn't work because eventually things will go wrong for the government. Pretty soon, probably, and they'll need ministers out there on television defending them. So, uh, so I just I don't buy that. Um, uh, don't buy that uh, terror uh, approach. I don't think it's going to. I don't think it will work for them. But I think broadly, it was a fear of many people. Some of them Brexiteers like myself who had concerns about uh, Boris's ability to to do the job, and I think he's I think he's
1: doing it pretty well. Jenny, you were wrong. Boris Boris is brilliant.
3: Absolutely fantastic. Let's see, we're three weeks into this prime <laughs> ministership essentially. And can and remember
2: he be- spent twelve of those in Mustique on holiday? <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, <laughs> Boris hasn't screwed up yet
3: visibly after what, a fortnight of actually being around to do any work? I mean every single disaster that um, looms over Brexit um, has yet to happen. We're 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 in a we're in a pause, we're in a holding pattern. Of course not much is going wrong at the moment, or at least not until he announces Huawei and then HS two, both of which I think would be disasters. Because here's a Prime Minister with an eighty seat majority. It doesn't really matter what any of the opposition say or do at the moment. He's invulnerable and impregnable. When um, Ian says he doesn't have to worry about being liked at the moment or less than we thought, good God, he's sitting in Downing Street surrounded by servile people who are scurrying to meet his every need. He walks into every room and he doesn't have to worry about the ERG. He doesn't have to worry about rebellions. He doesn't have to worry about elections. No wonder he's sitting back as we hear being rather a CEO because... He's got everything he ever wanted: protection officers, my motorcycle outriders. Every time he wants to leave Downing Street in a hurry, he can sit there thinking, "I don't need to be liked. I am admired, respected, and loved with my eighty-seat majority. I am world king." I'd be delighted if Boris Johnson turned out to be an infinitely less bad prime minister than no, I thought he was going You to. Mean, <laughs> been yeah, would. be quietly annoyed. No, no
1: seriously. <laughs>
3: seriously. Of course, I've had to balance in the fact that personally, I I think he's a rather reprehensible human being. With the fact that he is the prime minister. And I'd like Britain to flourish. And one of the interesting things about having been um, a staunch opponent of Brexit and the Tory approach to it is that now that it's about to happen, people like me, I think, um, can sit back and think, you know, we did our best. We tried to make the counter argument. Turned out the country didn't care for it, wasn't listening, didn't change its mind, has freely chosen Boris. Boris has made a compact with the voters. Now I'm really curious. and hopeful about whether or not he can make a new kind of Britain work. I mean, I damn well hope he can.
4: I loved Jenny's endorsement there, which was, <laughs> I'll be delighted if he turns out to be an infinitely less worse bad. Prime
3: Minister. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but um, I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say though, isn't it? That you, you describe the 80, 80 seat majority almost as though it was like the weather or an an accident. I was saying saying he won it. It it happened as the result of the most extraordinary piece of escapology, even by the standards of the Conservative Party, which has specialized in it for for the last 200 years. He's someone who a year ago, when you ran into him at Westminster, and I can remember one encounter with a bunch of MPs and journalists, and the feeling was, well, Boris is about now. Boris is finished. May's agreement will probably pass. Yeah. They'll probably then need to st- to um, uh, skip a generation. There goes Boris, the man who never quite made it to be prime minister. And l- lots of people didn't predict it and didn't think that he could get the job. Lots of, remember all that stuff? The Tory MPs will stop him. Will the Tory members really go for him? Yes, oh, yes. Re- of course. We remember it all well. Went, went, went through it all. And the end result, after years of the most appalling chicanery, and um, fumbling by the Tory party is an 80-seat majority. And, of course, the electoral system helps him and the opposition helps him, but that is a remarkable political achievement, which should at least give people pause as you go into the next phase and think, well, maybe perhaps he was underestimated last year and maybe shouldn't be underestimated in the next couple of years. Lucy, you look puzzled.
2: Well, I just think that the he should be given credit for for what was a pretty astonishing and stunning victory for the Conservatives, but hugely predicated on how completely rubbish Labour were under (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn. And I just think it's all far too soon to say, you know, what kind of Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be, you know, as a columnist, you know, and as we saw in the election campaign, a lot of his past views often contradicting each other rake through. Nobody really knows what what he thinks. I mean, I'm interested to see um, how, he's, how he's turned out, but I think it's a, perhaps a little premature to, to declare him uh, a success at this stage. Do,
1: do we think there is a plan?
2: Well, I was talking to a
3: couple of people in Number 10 last night. No.
1: There is that sort of sense. No, that's what they said. There's no plan. We need to do something about this. They may may
3: come up with one, but but there are no plans at the moment. They're all at sea.
2: I think there are some things where they look to be forward-facing, embracing the future. I think the idea for, you know, hugely turbocharging investment into R&D and perhaps, you know, copying the US Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, um, in a civilian kind of context for the UK would be a good way in, in which to go to try and get ahead on some of the technologies which are going to be world-changing in, in the decades ahead. So I think that they do have some good ideas, whether they can deliver them ideas. or not. I'm sure there
3: are lots of ideas, but what I mean, there's no overarching plan, partly because everyone's energies were all focused on, could they possibly get out of this dire hole they were in and win and win the election? And the answer yeah. was they did, and that's what everybody was focused on.
4: Should, can't allow them to create the myth that they thought they were going to get an AC, ATC majority. <laughs> they thought they were going to get a majority of around sort of t- between 20 and 30 if they were lucky and everything fell um, fell properly for them. Does he have a vision? It's a vision, if it exists, which is quite close to a... a, a leave Europe to one side, it's close to a, a Heza view of the world. And I think it is will be defined by, if it works, it'll be about... Britain um, increasing over the next 10 years, its long-term trend growth rate and improving its productivity. Everything will really flow from that because what Boris wants is, you can call it booming Britain, but something where you get above the appalling growth rates, which Britain and large parts of the West have suffered. Now, he can't influence all of that, but you can, for example, on skills and training, that again, and there is already a lot happening, but if you do more of that and try and make a real difference in places um, places that have been left behind, that'll be how he's measured, that in five years' time, you say, do you know what, actually, not that there was a crazy boom, but that Britain's, Britain's long term trend growth picked up a bit. A lot of economists are very, very sceptical of that. And it's very difficult to achieve. But that's what I think they should be judged on.
2: I think you're absolutely right. One sort of um, obstacle or or growing sort of barrier to that, which hasn't emerged yet, will be the internal conservative opposition that grows to him um, against sort of his regime. And because he's got such a large majority and everyone predicts it'll be 10 years um, in government, I think it, there will be quite a wait now before people decide to chuck in any sort of um, aim at preferment by the Boris Johnson number 10 and stand against him. But I think gradually over the next of 18 months, you will see new kind of big beasts I, of opposition emerge. And that it will be interesting I, to see the dynamics. Think, I
4: think the free marketeers, and I speak as someone who tends more to that side of the argument than the, the Heza One Nation argument, I think the free marketeers and my friends on the free market right can go whistle. I really think. I think after the near death experience, which the Conservative Party had, nearly actually broken by the Brexit Party scoring nine percent of the European results, you get a lot of reports from think tanks and grumbles from Tory MPs and some commentators saying, "Why is he spending too much? Why is he doing this on welfare? Why is he um, rescuing Flybe? It's already started." And I can see that from an orthodox free market position. However, Boris is not and never has been an orthodox Thatcherite in economic terms. He's much closer to the Heseltine analysis. You saw that in London (coughs) as well. And I think his attitude will be not in an unpleasant way. He'll essentially just ignore it and point to the election result and measure himself on whether or not he gets elected next time and make the perfectly plausible case that the country is not crying out for what free market think tanks think it is.
1: It'll be really interesting to see, I think, how that election result, although he got a lot of more MPs, whether or not he he's not able to use that because the, ma- the manifesto was not awash with big ideas and, and uh, direction. He doesn't really have a mandate to already have dozens of new toy MPs, both for and against HS2. How has he not got a mandate one, or, one way or the other on such a massive project? It'll be interesting to see how if too many of them start getting ideas about, well, I'm going to put a letter into number 10 about this or a into number 10 about that, how does he start trying to balance those issues? But it'll be interesting to see, and I think it's nice to finish on a nice, upbeat note, Ian, <laughs> that it's all going very well. Uh, if you don't think it's going very well, you can email us, redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk uh, forward slash uh, redbox, and uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. But for now, my thanks to Ian, Lucy, and Jenny. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.